Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Monday, January the 28th. Well, I do think the momentum is building and there are a lot of reports and, and actions and activities joining up these big issues, particularly around food for its impact on, on health and its impact on climate change. On January the 27th, The Lancet published an obesity commission. You may recall we've discussed this in the podcast previously based on obesity series published by The Lancet in 2015 and further back in 2011. But this new commission takes a much broader view through the intersecting lenses of three global pandemics, obesity, undernutrition and climate change, to help define a problem and find solutions for a problem that has often been discussed but where global action remains lamentable. This podcast brings together a stellar cast in the arena of global obesity. Introduced and concluded by the two leading co-authors of the commission, Bill Dietz and Boyd Swinburne. And uniquely for this commission and for the podcast, we have three incredible insights looking at the way that obesity touches other aspects of life, specifically in relation to stigma, to indigenous culture and to health equity. And do look out for the accompanying comments published alongside the Lancet Obesity Commission. The publication date again, January the 27th, 2019. I'm Bill Dietz. I'm the chair of the Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. And I'm a co-chair of the Lancet Commission on Obesity. We started off as the Lancet Commission on Obesity, but we quickly realized that obesity was just one of three major health hazards facing the world, the other two being undernutrition and climate change. We thought that climate change really was in the same category as the pandemics of obesity and undernutrition, that in terms of its impact on human disease and health, that climate change really did need to be considered as a pandemic. And we recognize that these three pandemics fit the definition of a syndemic. A syndemic is a series of diseases, two or more, that interact in the same time and place and have common social, environmental, or economic factors that foster that interaction and cause disease. We also realized that if we adopted the perspective that this was a global syndemic, that we could begin to search for what we call double or triple duty solutions. That is, solutions which affect two or more of these pandemics simultaneously. Several examples might be useful. So that, for example, meat consumption is a contributor to colon cancer and obesity. Meat production generates a lot of greenhouse gases and climate change fosters the likelihood of droughts and floods in the developing world so that undernutrition is likely to be increased. So reductions in beef consumption will cause reductions in the supply of beef and a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and presumably an improvement in health. A second example comes from transport systems. So that, for example, we know that car use is associated with obesity and cars generate a lot of greenhouse gases. So that reductions in car use would increase the likelihood of public transport or physical transport, that is walking and biking, which would help to prevent obesity reduce greenhouse gases, and improve the, the likelihood of improved nutrition in the developing world. It's also important to realize that these costs of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change fall disproportionately on the developing world and on poor populations. 
So it's not just an issue of disease, it's an issue of, of health equity. Around the world, uh, undernutrition has been declining until quite recently, and there's been a recent uptick. And obesity is an increasing in every area of the world. And as we know, the rise in uh, global CO2 has been increasing. These really pose dire problems. And for example, we know that obesity costs approximately 3% of the world's gross domestic product. Undernutrition in Asia and Africa costs about 4 to 11% of gross domestic product. And climate change is likely to exceed 5 to 10% of the world's GDP. So these are costly problems, not just uh, significant health problems in terms of the number of people affected. One of the major concerns is malnutrition in all its forms, including undernutrition, obesity, and dietary risks for non-communicable diseases. These are by far the largest causes of ill health and premature death globally. We know that undernutrition and obesity interact. In, for example, in middle-income countries, a substantial proportion of children are affected by both obesity and undernutrition simultaneously. So this is another illustration of how these diseases interact. One of the things that we recognized about the global pandemic is there are significant drivers of systems that underpin the pandemics of undernutrition, obesity, and climate change. Those systems include the agricultural system, transport, urban design, and land use. Underneath those are things like governance or policy inertia, things that drive the systems or, or make the systems impossible to reverse. One of the things that the commission felt quite strongly about was the need to have the voices of people affected by obesity. Throughout the Lancet Commission report, we have a number of examples of policy successes, for example, but also of people directly affected by obesity. So Patty Neese has had severe obesity for much of her life and is very articulate about the social costs of that and the effect of stigma and bias against people with obesity. Hi, I'm Patty Neese. I'm a board member on the Obesity Action Coalition. The Obesity Action Coalition is dedicated to representing the interests of people affected by obesity. I've had obesity since childhood. I don't remember a time when I didn't have it. I carried my weight into adulthood and my obesity just got worse. Having obesity as a child, you're open to ridicule, bullying from friends, family, peers, even institutions. I remember a time in elementary school when the school nurse came into the classroom, wheeled in a big scale, and proceeded to weigh every child in the classroom in front of each other. I didn't want to get on the scale because I knew I was a big kid. And I got on it, and she took my weight and my height, and she said, you're fat, you need to lose weight in front of all my peers. I just wanted to crawl under my desk. I was so embarrassed. And it was comments like that just don't help people with obesity. In fact, they hurt because you tend to eat more or you isolate yourself. Your psychological status, your self-esteem is all affected by stigma and bias. I'm sure that incidents like that throughout my life have just caused my obesity to get worse. Shaming and blaming people with obesity, we've been doing that for decades now, and it doesn't help because obesity is much more complex than just eating less and moving more. I have lost a substantial amount of weight. Because of that, I see the stigma even more because people treat me differently. They treat me better. 
they're kinder to me just in simple ways. It's striking. I mean, I always knew that was there, but it's even more striking to me now that I have lost weight. I personally believe that the stigma and bias against people at higher weights underlies so many of the policy decisions, both in government and in healthcare, including decisions made about someone's treatment and medical treatment. We have to do everything we can to eliminate weight bias. We also are quite fortunate to have somebody from the indigenous Maori population to comment on the effects of obesity on that population. What we think is important is this perspective of indigenous people, which could shape how we address the global syndemic. So, for example, the Iroquois Nation in upstate New York makes decisions based on the seventh generation effects of those decisions, so that they're very much planning for the future in a way that we have not done. So, including the indigenous voice about obesity, climate change, and undernutrition, we thought was quite important. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Ihirangi Heke. I'm a population health expert or specialist in working in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with uh, Maori populations. In global terms, New Zealand Maori are probably the youngest indigenous population because New Zealand was the last place to be populated on the planet. But it also makes us ones that are still connected very strongly to our culture and our traditions. Because of the location being in the South Pacific, um, we tend to carry more body mass to be able to deal with the cold down these ways. And also, we um, have an ability to see our body weight as part of our ability to be self-defining. And if I explain it a little more, it means that in Maori communities, health and the idea of obesity is being used to oppress Maori in the way that the New Zealand government and uh, non-Māori have said, well, you need to control this weight because your diabetes and cardiovascular disease is out of control. Whereas uh, people, we've always seen an individual as a consequence of the environment that's caused them, which means that we see our people as mountains and water, if you like. There were pieces of legislation in the early 20th century, 1900s, that were used to stop Māori practising their traditional uh, processes, which meant trying to convince Māori communities that health was about the individual. And we've never held that as a premise. We've always used and had understood the consequences of uh, systems and environments and what they'll cause in an individual. So we believe that if you understand how an ocean works, how a forest works, and that you travel to those places in order to learn that information, you have an incidental outcome of not gaining weight anyway. When it's aimed at the individual, it doesn't work for us. For us to be able to move forward as Indigenous groups, we need to centre our processes around Indigenous knowledge, which means the pursuit of those things that are in our environments that have allowed our people to survive to this point, which means studying the ocean, studying the forest, going out into those places where the natural environment occurs. When we do that, there's a couple of consequences. One is that we use the language that's connected to those places, so we sustain our languages through understanding biodiversity. The further consequence is that we increase our physical activity by going to those places in the pursuit of that indigenous knowledge. When we do that, it removes the negative concepts that are attached to health for indigenous people and replaces it with a positive aspect of trying to pursue knowledge first. And that removes people from the concept of health altogether. And the incidental consequence of all of that is that we start to lose weight. Another 
important perception is the the role of inequities. And this affects both the people affected by climate change as well as those affected by undernutrition and obesity. There's a, a higher prevalence and a higher exposure to undernutrition and obesity and climate change among disparate populations, particularly minority populations. So we've been fortunate to have Shariki Kumanyika, who's an expert on health equity, talk to us and, and be part of this paper. Well, my name is Shariki Kumanyika. I'm a professor in the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the USA. It's actually more complicated to explain the role of equity in both causing obesity and the solutions because it differs in high-income countries and uh, low- and middle-income countries that are in what we call the nutrition transition. So in high-income countries like the U.S. Or, or the U.K., obesity is associated with people with low social position, and the higher you go up the socioeconomic scale or social class scale, the less obesity you have. When people are in transition and in the, in the poorer countries, obesity at first is a sign that you're in good health and that you're affluent and you can afford to overeat, so to speak, and probably have a lot less physical activity. So you see obesity first in the people who are better off, and then it shifts ultimately to the people who are least well off. And that's been seen in some of the European countries, but it also is happening in uh, other, other continents. It's happening, happened in Africa and some other places. The ability to address obesity may be least in groups with low social position everywhere once it comes because the things that perpetuate obesity are probably more common in the lower social class groups everywhere. What it means is that we've got to make it easier for people to avoid the forces that drive overconsumption of calories and that make people sedentary as soon as they can afford to be sedentary or inactive. Our physiological systems are just not wired to uh, turn away palatable food. We don't have a good meter for the quantity of food that we're eating and the way that we overeating shows up with excess weight gain. With physical activity, there are lots of reasons why people may view being the ability to be inactive as a good thing because it's associated with having a car, you know, increased social status and so forth. So really we have to engineer the environments such that people's natural behaviors will allow them to control their weight. The people who are able to control their weight when the obesity epidemic hits are people who have a lot of control over their environments, their lives, their schedules, and they can actually afford to engage in active weight control. The kinds of foods that are associated with controlling obesity may be less available. So the flip side is that even though people might be, be growing food, that food may be going for export and they really don't have the diets with the fresh fruits and vegetables and so forth or don't have the time to prepare foods in ways that would help them to control their calories. Equity and, or inequity is one of the th threads that goes across all three aspects of, of the syndemic. I've already talked about how obesity will have a, a particular effect on people and limited resource situations and with undernutrition. With climate change, the people who suffer most are the populations that have the least. They're more vulnerable to the climate events. 
the solutions to climate change may get to them last. And I think we've seen that with some of the, in the U.S. certainly, with some of the, the hurricanes and weather events. People are, are starting off with limited resources, and it may be years before they ever get back even to where they were. One of the nicest things uh, about the Lancet Commission report was the work that I did with my co-chair, Boyd Swinburne. This was a true collaboration around the organization and writing. Uh, and Boyd is such an expert on the policy initiatives that it seemed like a, a very nice joining of areas of expertise. So I'm Boyd Swinburne. I'm Professor of Population Nutrition and Global Health at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. There are many recommendations out there that actually are not implemented. And if they were, we'd be in a much better position. So we did define this problem of policy inertia, that recommendations are just not getting through, which is actually all part of the problem. It's not only that we have escalating obesity, but part of the problem is that the policies are not being implemented that are being recommended by WHO. What we tried to do with our recommendations was to get underneath that to identify those actions which, if they were implemented, would have multiple ongoing benefits for obesity, for undernutrition, and for climate change, these so-called triple duty actions. And I think by sort of getting down into the deep systemic drivers of this and seeing how those systems can be changed, we will get much more of the win-win-win solutions that we're looking for. Let me just pull out a few of the recommendations to give you a sense of what we're calling for. So the first thing is is a conceptual framework, thinking about global syndemic terms, understanding that actually things like obesity and undernutrition and climate change are all caused by a set of underlying systemic drivers. So seeing that these things are joined up is, I think, actually the first step. That helps to get collaboration across areas of action, breaking down the silos, seeing that the ministries responsible for agriculture have a big role with climate change, have a big role with health, and so on. There obviously is a large burden of uh, the need for action which rests on national governments. That's where the jurisdiction lies. That's where a lot of potential action is. For a start, there are things that governments can do. Reducing poverty is a big one because this all these problems fall disproportionately on poor countries and poorer populations. Implementing human rights obligations to the maximum is really important. And we frame this concept of right to well-being, which incorporates the rights of the child, right to health, right to food, cultural rights, and rights to a healthy environment. So this package of human rights is a fundamental underpinning legal structure. There are enormous subsidies for a start that go into these products which are damaging environment and da damaging health. Over $5 trillion a year of taxpayers' money goes into subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and a lot of monoculture agriculture, uh, particularly supporting uh, dairy and a sugar and a handful of grains that end up in ultra-processed products. So turning those subsidies into things that are better for the environment and better for health is fundamental. Things like 
providing clear, understandable information to consumers. And here's an example of a triple duty action just in the idea of sustainable dietary guidelines. Now, most countries have dietary guidelines, but only three or four countries have taken the next step to define what are sustainable and healthy dietary patterns to follow. If countries go through and define that for themselves, that is an underpinning policy which then floats through into communications with consumers, uh, what goes on labelling, perhaps even we'll get uh, sustainability indicators such as carbon footprints on products. There are many cities that are now becoming much more active in terms of dealing with the problems which are facing them immediately, things like air pollution, things like traffic congestion, and many of them are taking the next short step to being leaders in climate change and action on climate change. And it's another relatively short step for them to go to being leaders in food systems and urban food systems that are sustainable and healthy. So cities have a set of jurisdictions where they can show leadership. One of the things that we are calling for is a framework convention on food systems. Now, framework convention sets out the legal framework that governments should be following to create healthy and sustainable food systems. That gives a kind of a global architecture, if you like, for legal structures for which countries should implement and should strengthen governments to implement these and try to prevent the undue influence of the commercial vested interests in policy making. Unfortunately, especially when it comes to food, the commercial interests tend to dominate over planetary interests and, and human health interests. Having a framework convention on sustainable, healthy, equitable food systems will help to fortify governments to make those policy changes. The Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is the model that we're looking at, and they have a very strong part of that, which is about restricting commercial influences, as well as giving the set of regulatory legal tools that governments need to implement to reduce smoking. You need the same sort of global instrument to help uh, guide countries to develop policies for, uh, for healthy food systems. What is going to be the disruptors that shift us from the status quo? A big sleeping actor in all of this, I think, is civil society. The NGOs, the organisations, the public, the professional organisations, the academics who care deeply about the directions for the planet and for health. They are often relatively fragmented. They don't have, uh, they're not coordinated. They don't have a unifying voice. They don't create the pressure and the demand for policies that will be needed. We're calling for a billion dollar fund from philanthropists to support civil societies across a hundred countries to get them mobilized to create the demand for policy action. That is the sleeping giant. If they can be coordinated and their voice gets heard, that will increase the pressure and could be a game changer for getting these policies. And the civil society groups and the academic groups are also key players in accountability. So accountability systems and structures need to be in place and there are some developing already in accountability for governments and 
food industry about their actions to create healthier, sustainable food environments. Those nascent uh, monitoring structures need to be incorporated actually into the UN systems, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, the, the goals that WHO has for reducing non-communicable diseases. They need to shift their monitoring focus, not from saying, what are your obesity levels, but actually what policies have you implemented to reduce obesity? And so shifting that monitoring focus up to not just what the outcomes are, that's important, but what are the governments actually doing? Civil society can also be a powerful force uh, in that area if they are reporting to the UN about how their governments are doing, I think that can be a stronger accountability mechanism. Well, I do think the momentum is building and there are a lot of reports and, and actions and activities around this area of these joining up these big issues, particularly around food for its impact on, on health and its impact on climate change. I don't think we really have any choice other than to get marked improvements and accelerations on what we're already doing. We need transformation of the food systems and our transport systems to be able to do it. I think the sleeping giant is mobilizing civil society and creating that demand for action. And I think that is building. If there was some funding to come in to support civil society coordination like that, that could be a rapid accelerator of the demand and therefore the action. Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Monday, January the 28th. Well, I do think the momentum is building and there are a lot of reports and, and actions and activities joining up these big issues, particularly around food for its impact on, on health and its impact on climate change. On January the 27th, The Lancet published an obesity commission. You may recall we've discussed this in the podcast previously based on obesity series published by The Lancet in 2015 and further back in 2011. But this new commission takes a much broader view through the intersecting lenses of three global pandemics, obesity, undernutrition and climate change, to help define a problem and find solutions for a problem that has often been discussed where global action remains lamentable. This podcast brings together a stellar cast in the arena of global obesity, introduced and concluded by the two leading co-authors of the commission, Bill Dietz and Boyd Swinburne. And uniquely for this commission and for the podcast, we have three incredible insights looking at the way that obesity touches other aspects of life, specifically in relation to stigma, to indigenous culture and to health equity. And do look out for the accompanying comments published alongside the Lancet Obesity Commission. The publication date again, January the 27th, 2019. I'm Bill Dietz. I'm the chair of the Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. And I'm a co-chair of the Lancet Commission on Obesity. We started off as the Lancet Commission on Obesity, but we quickly realized that obesity was just one of three major health hazards facing the world, the other two being undernutrition and climate change. We thought that climate change really was in the same category as the pandemics of obesity and undernutrition, that in terms of its impact on human disease and health, that climate change really did need to be considered as a pandemic. And we recognize that these three pandemics 
fit the definition of a syndemic. A syndemic is a series of diseases, two or more, that interact in the same time and place and have common social, environmental, or economic factors that foster that interaction and cause disease. We also realized that if we adopted the perspective that this was a global syndemic, that we could begin to search for what we call double or triple duty solutions. That is, solutions which affect two or more of these pandemics simultaneously. Several examples might be useful. So that, for example, meat consumption is a contributor to colon cancer and obesity. Meat production generates a lot of greenhouse gases and climate change fosters the likelihood of droughts and floods in the developing world so that undernutrition is likely to be increased. So reductions in beef consumption will cause reductions in the supply of beef and a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and presumably an improvement in health. A second example comes from transport systems. So that, for example, we know that car use is associated with obesity and cars generate a lot of greenhouse gases. So that reductions in car use would increase the likelihood of public transport or physical transport, that is walking and biking, which would help to prevent obesity reduce greenhouse gases, and improve the the likelihood of improved nutrition in the developing world. It's also important to realize that these costs of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change fall disproportionately on the developing world and on poor populations. So it's not just an issue of disease, it's an issue of of health equity. Around the world, uh, undernutrition has been declining until quite recently, and there's been a recent uptick. And obesity is increasing in every area of the world. And as we know, the rise in uh, global CO2 has been increasing. These really pose dire problems. And for example, we know that Obesity costs approximately 3% of the world's gross domestic product. Undernutrition in Asia and Africa costs about 4 to 11% of gross domestic product. And climate change is likely to exceed 5 to 10% of the world's GDP. So these are costly problems, not just uh, significant health problems in terms of the number of people affected. One of the major concerns is malnutrition in all its forms, including undernutrition, obesity, and dietary risks for non-communicable diseases. These are by far the largest causes of ill health and premature death globally. We know that undernutrition and obesity interact. For example, in middle-income countries, a substantial proportion of children are affected by both obesity and undernutrition simultaneously. So this is another illustration of how these diseases interact. One of the things that we recognized about the global pandemic is there are significant drivers of systems that underpin the pandemics of undernutrition, obesity, and climate change. Those systems include the agricultural system, transport, urban design, and land use. Underneath those are things like governance or policy inertia, things that drive the systems or, or make the systems impossible to reverse. One of the things that the commission felt quite strongly about was the need to have the voices of people affected by obesity. Throughout the Lancet Commission report, we have a number of examples of policy successes, for example, but also of people directly affected by obesity. So Patty Neese has had severe obesity for much of her life and is very articulate about the social costs of that and the effect of stigma and bias against people with obesity. Hi, I'm Patty Neese. I'm a board member on the Obesity Action Coalition. The Obesity Action Coalition is dedicated to representing the interests of people affected by obesity. 
I've had obesity since childhood. I don't remember a time when I didn't have it. I carried my weight into adulthood and my obesity just got worse. Having obesity as a child, you're open to ridicule, bullying from friends, family, peers, even institutions. I remember a time in elementary school when the school nurse came into the classroom, wheeled in a big scale and proceeded to weigh every child in the classroom in front of each other. I didn't want to get on the scale because I knew I was a big kid. And I got on it and she took my weight and my height and she said, you're fat, you need to lose weight in front of all my peers. I just wanted to crawl under my desk. I was so embarrassed. And it was comments like that just don't help people with obesity. In fact, they hurt because you tend to eat more or you isolate yourself. Your psychological status, your self-esteem is all affected by stigma and bias. I'm sure that incidents like that throughout my life have just caused my obesity to get worse. Shaming and blaming people with obesity We've been doing that for decades now, and it doesn't help because obesity is much more complex than just eating less and moving more. I have lost a substantial amount of weight. Because of that, I see the stigma even more because people treat me differently. They treat me better. They're kinder to me just in simple ways. It's striking. I mean, I always knew that was there, but it's even more striking to me now that I have lost weight. I personally believe that the stigma and bias against people at higher weights underlies so many of the policy decisions, both in government and in healthcare, including decisions made about someone's treatment and medical treatment. We have to do everything we can to eliminate weight bias. We also are quite fortunate to have somebody from the indigenous Maori population to comment on the effects of obesity on that population. What we think is important is the perspective of indigenous people, which could shape how we address the global syndemic. So, for example, the Iroquois Nation in upstate New York makes decisions based on the seventh generation effects of those decisions so that they're very much planning for the future in a way that we have not done. So including the indigenous voice about obesity, climate change, and undernutrition, we thought was quite important. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Ihirangi Heke. I'm a population health expert or specialist in working in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with uh, Maori populations. In global terms, New Zealand Maori are probably the youngest indigenous population because New Zealand was the last place to be populated on the planet. But it also makes us ones that are still connected very strongly to our culture and our traditions. Because of the location being in the South Pacific, um, we tend to carry more body mass to be able to deal with the cold down these ways. And also, we um, have an ability to see our body weight as part of our ability to be self-defining. And if I explain it a little more, it means that in Maori communities, health and the idea of obesity is being used to oppress Maori in the way that the New Zealand government and uh, non-Maori have said, well, you need to control this weight because your diabetes and cardiovascular disease is out of control. Whereas a people, we've always seen an individual as a consequence of the environment that's caused them which means that we see our people as mountains and water, if you like. There were pieces of legislation in the early 20th century, 1900s, that were used to stop Māori practising their traditional uh, processes, which meant 
trying to convince Māori communities that health was about the individual, and we've never held that as a premise. We've always used and had understood the consequences of uh, systems and environments and what they'll cause in an individual. So we believe that if you understand how an ocean works, how a forest works, and that you travel to those places in order to learn that information, you have an incidental outcome of not gaining weight anyway. When it's aimed at the individual, it doesn't work for us. For us to be able to move forward as Indigenous groups, we need to centre our processes around Indigenous knowledge, which means the pursuit of those things that are in our environments that have allowed our people to survive to this point, which means studying the ocean, studying the forest, going out into those places where the natural environment occurs. When we do that, there's a couple of consequences. One is that we use the language that's connected to those places, so we sustain our languages through understanding biodiversity. The further consequence is that we increase our physical activity by going to those places in the pursuit of that Indigenous knowledge. When we do that, it removes the negative concepts that are attached to health for Indigenous people and replaces it with a positive aspect of trying to pursue knowledge first. And that removes people from the concept of health altogether. And the incidental consequence of all of that is that we start to lose weight. Another important perception is the, the role of inequities. And this affects both the people affected by climate change as well as those affected by undernutrition and obesity. There's a, a higher prevalence and a higher exposure to undernutrition and obesity and climate change among disparate populations, particularly minority populations. So we've been fortunate to have Shariki Kumunyika, who's an expert on health equity, talk to us and, and be part of this paper. Well, my name is Shariki Kumunyika. I'm a professor in the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the USA. It's actually more complicated to explain the role of equity in both causing obesity and the solutions because it differs in high-income countries and uh, low- and middle-income countries that are in what we call the nutrition transition. So in high-income countries like the U.S. Or, or the U.K., obesity is associated with people with low social position, and the higher you go up the socioeconomic scale or social class scale, the less obesity you have. When people are in transition and in the, in the poorer countries, obesity at first is a sign that you're in good health and that you're affluent and you can afford to overeat, so to speak, and probably have a lot less physical activity. So you see obesity first in the people who are better off, and then it shifts ultimately to the people who are least well off. And that's been seen in some of the European countries, but it also is happening in uh, other, on other continents. It's happening, happened in Africa and some other places. The ability to address obesity may be least in groups with low social position everywhere once it comes because the things that perpetuate obesity are probably more common in the lower social class groups everywhere. What it means is that we've got to make it easier for people to avoid the forces that drive overconsumption of calories and that make people sedentary as soon as they can afford to be sedentary or inactive. Our physiological systems are just not wired 
to uh, turn away palatable food. We don't have a good meter for the quantity of food that we're eating. And the way that we overeating shows up with excess weight gain. The physical activity, there are lots of reasons why people may view being the ability to be inactive as a good thing because it's associated with having a car, you know, increased social status and so forth. So really we have to engineer the environment such that people's natural behaviors will allow them to control their weight. The people who are able to control their weight when the obesity epidemic hits are people who have a lot of control over their environments, their lives, their schedules, and they can actually afford to engage in active weight control. The kinds of foods that are associated with controlling obesity may be less available so the flip side is that even though people might be, be growing food, that food may be going for export and they really don't have the diets with the fresh fruits and vegetables and so forth or don't have the time to prepare foods in ways that would help them to control their calories. Equity or inequity is one of the th threads that goes across all three aspects of, of the syndemic. I've already talked about how obesity will have a, a particular effect on people and limited resource situations, and with undernutrition. With climate change, the people who suffer most are the populations that have the least. They're more vulnerable to the climate events. The solutions to climate change may get to them last, and I think we've seen that with some of the, in the U.S. certainly, with some of the, the hurricanes and weather events. People are, are starting off with limited resources, and it may be years before they ever get back even to where they were. One of the nicest things uh, about the Lancet Commission report was the work that I did with my co-chair, Boyd Swinburne. This was a true collaboration around the organization and writing. Uh, and Boyd is such an expert on the policy initiatives that it seemed like a, a very nice joining of areas of expertise. So I'm Boyd Swinburne. I'm professor of population nutrition and global health at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. There are many recommendations out there that actually are not implemented. And if they were, we'd be in a much better position. So we did define this problem of policy inertia, that recommendations are just not getting through, which is actually all part of the problem. It's not only that we have escalating obesity, but part of the problem is that the policies are not being implemented that are being recommended by WHO. What we tried to do with our recommendations was to get underneath that to identify those actions which, if they were implemented, would have multiple ongoing benefits for obesity, for undernutrition, and for climate change, these so-called triple duty actions. And I think by sort of getting down into the deep systemic drivers of this and seeing how those systems can be changed, we will get much more of the win-win-win solutions that we're looking for. Let me just pull out a few of the recommendations to give you a sense of what we're calling for. So the first thing is, is a conceptual framework, thinking about global syndemic terms, understanding that actually things like obesity and undernutrition and climate change are all caused by a set of underlying systemic drivers. So seeing that these things are joined up is, I think, actually the first step. That helps to get collaboration across areas of action, breaking down the silos, 
seeing that the ministries are responsible for agriculture have a big role with climate change, have a big role with health, and so on. There obviously is a large burden of uh, the need for action which rests on national governments. That's where the jurisdiction lies. That's where a lot of potential action is. For a start, there are things that governments can do. Reducing poverty is a big one because this all these problems fall disproportionately on poor countries and poorer populations. Implementing human rights obligations to the maximum is really important. And we frame this concept of right to well-being, which incorporates the rights of the child, right to health, right to food, cultural rights, and rights to a healthy environment. So this package of human rights is a fundamental underpinning legal structure. There are enormous subsidies for a start that go into these products which are damaging environment and damaging health. Over $5 trillion a year of taxpayers' money goes into subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and a lot of monoculture agriculture, uh, particularly supporting uh, dairy and a sugar and a handful of grains that end up in ultra-processed products. So turning those subsidies into things that are better for the environment and better for health is fundamental. Things like providing clear, understandable information to consumers. And here's an example of a triple duty action just in the idea of sustainable dietary guidelines. Now, most countries have dietary guidelines, but only three or four countries have taken the next step to define what are sustainable and healthy dietary patterns to follow. If countries go through and define that for themselves, that is an underpinning policy which then floats through into communications with consumers, uh, what goes on labelling, perhaps even we'll get uh, sustainability indicators such as carbon footprints on products. There are many cities that are now becoming much more active in terms of dealing with the problems which are facing them immediately, things like air pollution, things like traffic congestion, and many of them are taking the next short step to being leaders in climate change and action on climate change. And it's another relatively short step for them to go to being leaders in food systems and urban food systems that are sustainable and healthy. So cities have a set of jurisdictions where they can show leadership. One of the things that we are calling for is a framework convention on food systems. Now, framework convention sets out the legal framework that governments should be following to create healthy and sustainable food systems. That gives a kind of a global architecture, if you like, for legal structures for which countries should implement and should strengthen governments to implement these and try to prevent the undue influence of the commercial vested interests in policy making. Unfortunately, especially when it comes to food, the commercial interests tend to dominate over planetary interests and, and human health interests. Having a framework convention on sustainable, healthy, equitable food systems will help to fortify governments to make those policy changes. The Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is the model that we're looking at, and they have a very strong part of that 
which is about restricting commercial influences, as well as giving the set of regulatory legal tools that governments need to implement to reduce smoking. We need the same sort of global instrument to help uh, guide countries to develop policies for, uh, for healthy food systems. What is going to be the disruptors that shift us from the status quo? A big sleeping actor in all of this, I think, is civil society. The NGOs, the organisations, the public, the professional organisations, the academics who care deeply about the directions for the planet and for health. They are often relatively fragmented. They don't have, uh, they're not coordinated. They don't have a unifying voice. They don't create the pressure and the demand for policies that will be needed. We're calling for a billion dollar fund from philanthropists to support civil societies across a hundred countries to get them mobilized to create the demand for policy action. That is the sleeping giant. If they can be coordinated and their voice gets heard, that will increase the pressure and could be a game changer for getting these policies. And the civil society groups and the academic groups are also key players in accountability. So accountability systems and structures need to be in place and there are some developing already in accountability for governments and food industry about their actions to create healthier, sustainable food environments. Those nascent uh, monitoring structures need to be incorporated actually into the UN systems, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, the, the goals that WHO has for reducing non-communicable diseases, they need to shift their monitoring focus, not from saying, what are your obesity levels, but actually what policies have you implemented to reduce obesity? And so shifting that monitoring focus up to not just what the outcomes are, that's important, but what are the governments actually doing? Civil society can also be a powerful force uh, in that area, if they are reporting to the UN about how their governments are doing, I think that can be a stronger accountability mechanism. Well, I do think the momentum is building and there are a lot of reports and, and actions and activities around this area of these joining up these big issues, particularly around food for its impact on, on health and its impact on climate change. I don't think we really have any choice other than to get marked improvements and accelerations on what we're already doing. We need transformation of the food systems and our transport systems to be able to do it. I think the sleeping giant is mobilizing civil society and creating that demand for action. And I think that is building. If there was some funding to come in to support civil society coordination like that, that could be a rapid accelerator of the demand and therefore the action.